Good morning. Our scripture reading today comes from John 2. If you are willing and able, would you please stand as I read verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each of them holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who drew the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, I want to say hi to everyone here on campus with us and those of you watching online. Great to have you with us wherever you are joining us from uh, today. Uh, If you're on campus and you'd like to remove your mask during the sermon, uh, please feel free to do that. And actually this week is the first time I actually get to see smiling faces when I preach, which is wonderful. So uh, please feel the liberty to do that. Um, If you're new with us uh, today, um, we have been talking about Um, what we're going to be studying, this theme for the year. And if you're new, I'm really glad you're here because you get to be on the front end of hearing about these encounters uh, that various people had with Jesus and how it dramatically changed their lives. Um, These encounters where it wasn't about what they did, but what Jesus uh, had done. And these encounters, they vary from every kind of person, from young to old, to rich to poor, to skeptics, to religious people, um, all of them having this encounter with this first century rabbi. And the sermon series we're closing out today is called Unexpected Places. Uh, We've been looking at some of these encounters that happened with Jesus that frankly, when we look at them, we're wondering why in the world did that happen there? What was it about that place? What made that so special? And today we find ourselves at a wedding party. So what does a wedding party of all things have to do with God's work in the world? And today I'd like to submit to you everything as everything, but we have to see what God has to teach us. And we have four questions that we must answer today. First, 
What's the big deal with this party? Second, what's the problem? Why is there a problem? Third, what's the remedy? And lastly, how do we receive it? What's the big deal with this party? Why is there a problem? What's the remedy? How do we receive it? First, what's the big, big deal with this party? Well, we first have to understand in ancient cultures, uh, parties like this did not happen very often. Um, and when they did happen, uh, they were for the whole town, the whole small city. Everyone, please come to this party. Uh, wedding feasts uh, that happened during this ancient period would take about seven days. The whole party would. Now, you may be thinking, well, seven days, that seems a bit excessive for a party. Uh, But in this world, uh, the party, the wedding feast was the celebration. It was the culmination of a reality. That reality is that there was a groom who had betrothed himself to a wife and had gone away to prepare a place for her, to build a house for her. And he said, once I prepare this place for you, I will come again. And so he he returns uh, after he's built this home to Uh, receive his new bride. And part of this was he would finish the house. He would prepare it. He would come to receive her and there would be a party. And this party would be the last picture of their engagement and the party as it culminated, they would be husband and wife. And and the groom uh, would take full responsibility for this party, all the festivities, all the costs, everything about it, the groom and the groom's family would take care of. And so if you're a father of daughters uh, this morning, you may be longing for the biblical return to this value where the groom pays for everything. We read this in the beginning of this section, these words on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, Cana of Galilee is about nine miles north of Nazareth. Uh, And these communities would have known each other very, very well. Because you see, in ancient cultures, uh, nobody said, um, you know what, mom and dad, I'm getting out of this small town life. I'm going to go where my name can be in the lights. I'm, I'm moving to Orlando. I'm moving to Jerusalem. I'm moving to any large city. Uh, you know, people in these uh, ancient cultures didn't live that way. No one, no one said this because the social reality of the day uh, was the reality was determined by your parents, your grandparents, and the generations before. So if your grandfather was a carpenter and your father was a carpenter, guess what you were going to be? You were going to be a carpenter. Now, what does this mean that you were from Nazareth? What is meant by that? is that your family did not come here because you had some dream location you wanted to move to. It wasn't this dream, oh, someday we've got to move to Nazareth. Uh, Your job didn't relocate you to Nazareth. It's because of this, these communities became very well known to one another in Cana and in Nazareth. The, The generations of those families had become interconnected and those relationships had formed, which is the likelihood of why Mary and Jesus are invited to this wedding. They're invited to this wedding and Mary commentators say may have had a role to play in the festivities, but however you look at it, you may be wondering, okay, why is this party Jesus's first miracle? Why, why has he chosen this party to be his first miracle? And the first thing we have to say about this account and this miracle is that it must be true. It's historical. Now, why do I say that? Well, Reynolds Price, who's a professor of English literature at Duke University, uh, studied uh, this wedding at Cana. And this is what he examined when he looked at the evidence. He writes this. 
If you were inventing a biography of Jesus Christ, that is, if you were just making up stories about Jesus to get across his power and glory, who would invent as the inaugural sign of Jesus' career a miraculous solution to a mere social embarrassment? Reynolds Price is essentially saying that if you're making up stories about Jesus, about his power, about how he's so mighty, why would you ever come up with a story where he is cleaning up the mess of a catering disaster for his first miracle? Price says the years of experience he has in studying literature, it doesn't make sense unless it's true, unless it's, unless it's historical. Uh, that the evidence of this story is corroborating with itself. All the pieces make sense. The second reason we need to see this party is a really big deal is because it gives the backdrop of the entire story that God is trying to tell throughout the Bible. What do I mean by that? You see, throughout the Bible, through the story of the scriptures, God calls himself the groom and his people are his bride. Uh, There are many scriptures that point to this, but I'll just give you two. Uh, The first one comes from the prophet Isaiah. He says this, for as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Um, I love performing and attending weddings. Uh, there's, there's this nervous energy in the air. Um, and, and there's this, 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 this reality that all those a part of the festivities are hoping everything goes off perfectly without a hitch, which if you've ever been a part of wedding knows that nothing ever goes perfectly. Am I right? There's always something that goes wrong, but what I enjoy more than watching the bride walk down the aisle is I enjoy watching the groom watch the bride come down the aisle. So much joy in his face. So much excitement that she is about to be his. Such a terror underneath the surface because his father-in-law, who is about to shake his hand and give away his daughter, could possibly end his life if he messes this up. I've seen grooms smile ear to ear with joy. I've seen grooms burst into tears because of joy, but I've never seen a groom apathetically say as he saw his bride come down the aisle. Yeah, I guess she looks okay. They are taken by her beauty. Joy fills their heart. This is the story of the Bible. And God God thinks about you. He's filled with joy. He's delighted by you. He can't wait to see you. He can't wait for you to be his. his. And this brings us to the next chapter that plays out this theme. It says this. The word of the Lord came to me saying, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your, your love as a bride. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, what wrong did your fathers find in me? They, they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless. God sees himself as the groom, but he is driven to despair because of his bride's unfaithfulness. Um, I encounter people all the time who have issues with Christianity, issues with the Bible. And, and what they'll say to me sometimes is they look at these passages where they see God's anger, where they see his, his wrath uh, against his people. Uh, but they don't understand that anger is not his original emotion towards you. It's a response emotion. Why, now, why do I say that? If God sees himself as the groom, then he, he is for your joy. He's, he's for your flourishing. Uh, he's the groom on his wedding day waiting for you to come down the aisle. His anger 
is the response not in spite of his love, but because of his love. You see, if you've ever known a spouse who has been cheated on, it's their anger is a response to their love. Uh, it's the same way God feels about you. He's not, he's not a killjoy. Uh, it's, it's the exact opposite. He, he owns the copyright on joy, and he longs for you to have that. He longs for you to be his. The problem is we've plunged our joys into things that cannot satisfy. Uh, God says, do you see how I smile when I look at you? Uh, do, do you see how my joy is filled in my heart when I see you, when I see you coming down the aisle? You see, this is the culminating picture of the marriage joy and the marriage party. It is the celebration with wine and singing and dancing as hard as, especially dancing, but as hard as that may be for Presbyterians to get that dancing was such a part of this. Now, Presbyterians get the wine part, not so much the dancing part. Isaiah tells us with God's painful rejection, there will be a great redemption. He says this in Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make all people, for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Are you beginning to see why this party is such a big deal? This wedding party is a microcosm of the great story of redemption God is telling throughout history. The great bridegroom of all the universe who who longs for you to experience this joy, who longs to bring you into the wedding feast that he has made in your honor, to know the love that he has for you, to see his smile when he looks at you. But of course, For anyone here who's ever thrown a large party where there are going to be a lot of guests, there is always something that goes wrong, right? (laughs) Every time there's a situation, there is always something that goes wrong. And that brings us to the second question. Why is there a problem? Well, we see actually this problem in verse three. John writes this. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, alcohol running out at any party is a huge problem. Uh, But what we must first understand is in a a traditional honor-shame culture, like the party that's happening at Cana, to run out of wine was more than a social embarrassment. It would have brought shame on your family. Now, remember these parties. They don't happen very often. They're very infrequent. And when they do, the whole town is invited. This is the the one celebration for the whole, uh, whole neighborhood. And everyone lived for these parties. And so to run out of wine didn't mean you just send a buddy on a booze run to Publix. The, the, wine, the wine is out, and that is a huge problem. Uh, you know, all those emotions that a father feels um, when he gives his daughter away to a man who clearly doesn't deserve her. Every father has felt that. And all those questions that fill his mind as a father. Um, w- will he provide for her? Uh, will he keep her safe? Um, all those emotions that we feel as modern dads, these, these ancient fathers felt the same way. And so for the wine to run out on your tab would have been the ultimate mark of shame. The son-in-law would have felt this. And this is the problem we all feel. We have thirsted for something, but it could not satisfy. This is essentially what is happening in this story. However great the party was going, The wine glass was about to be empty. 
The joy of the party is about to disappear. This is the emotion of the human condition. We have put our hope in something to satisfy, to give us joy, but we have only found it has left us empty. We've put our hope in something or someone, and we have only found shame. Now, some of us, uh, maybe you have lived not, you haven't lived long enough to experience this. Um, you, you believe that the wine's never going to run out, but let me be someone who's just coming on the brink of that. Uh, even the older people here in the room or online can tell you, just wait, it's coming. It's coming. Some of us have put our hope in our career. Uh, we, we believe the wine will never run out. Uh, we, we keep pushing harder and harder and working longer and more hours because we think if we work harder, faster, and longer than everyone else, there's going to be an endless celebration. But all that we have found is that we are horribly thirsty. No joy. The glass is empty. Some of us, we've put our hope in our families, in our kids, in our marriages. Uh, but we realize that Mr. or Mrs. Wright actually have a lot of wrongs. And we transfer that hope onto these ungrateful little humans that we share in our home. And we live vicariously through them and their achievements, hoping that they will love us, hoping they will live such amazing lives that the party will go on forever. But you can tell that you're thirsty. You're tired. You're overwhelmed. And every decision that you make during this COVID season, you feel like someone else is judging you. And the reality is they are. Your joy is zapped and everyone has gone home from the party, leaving you to clean up the mess. Now, there are some of us who, you know, the wine glass is empty, uh, but rather than seeking the joy God has for you, you would like to attend the party that is called, quote, misery loves company. Uh, This is Eeyore's party. Uh, If you know Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh, uh, which means it's not really a party at all. The glasses, the glasses that fill with the hopes that you long for, but for the revenge of when that person gets what's coming to them, when they finally get what they deserve. You see, you've been saying to yourself, how, how and why did they move on with their lives so quickly? And I'm over here cleaning up all the pieces. This is the thirst that we all experience. It's part of the human condition. And if you don't believe me, uh, maybe you'll listen this morning to a very modern resident theologian himself, actor Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey was invited to present an award at the 2016 Golden Globes. And as part of being invited out to present the award, they always mention the person's name and their accomplishments of why you should listen to them. And the voice behind the curtain said, please welcome two-time Golden Globe winner Jim Carrey to the stage. Carrey comes out to the stage and he goes off script into a very pointed monologue. And this is what he says. Thank you. I am two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. You know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey, going to get some well-needed shut-eye. When I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe actor, Jim Carrey, because then I would be enough. It would finally be true. And I could stop this terrible search for what I know ultimately won't fulfill me. What started off in that moment as a floor, everybody rolling on the floor, laughing at what Jim Carrey had to say, 
uh, to these Hollywood elites turn into a very awkward silence because at the end of this pointed statement, everyone in the room could feel it. Behind the designer dresses, behind the makeup, behind the tuxedos, behind the who's who at your Golden Globe table, Carrie names what everyone is feeling. The wine glass is empty. We've all thirsted for something that we thought, when I get that, my life will have meaning and purpose. That we would have this life where everything would fill us. But what we find is we are empty. And what is that for you? Uh, Where have you put your hopes that you have found the joy is zapped? The best place for you to figure out is what is in your glasses. Where does your mental space go? Uh, What fills your thoughts? What consumes your worries? That's what's in the glass. And it's a toxic cocktail, no pun intended. Because the harder we search to fill our glass with whatever it is, the more quickly we find that we are running out. And we feel it. We feel overwhelmed. We feel stressed out. We feel, that they're, that we feel like the groom at this party, at the wedding at Cana. We feel, we feel shame. Now, I know what someone is thinking. Of, of course you're going to say this, Tyler. I mean, you're a minister, I mean, I know know this is what you're going to say. And I know what you're going to say next. You're going to say this. You're going to say, I need some religion in my life. I I need to be better about coming to church. I need to come weekly. I need to give to the church. I need to pray. I need to read my Bible. That's what you're going to say. I'm actually not. I'm actually not. You see, most of the time, what we see in the Bible and in this passage is religion leaves us just as joy zapped as any other pursuit. Why do I say that? Well, in verse six, we read that, uh, that was read earlier. We learned that there were these six empty stone water jars at this party. Uh, these jars were huge. I mean, they talked about that there was 20 or 30 gallons in each of these water jars. Now we learn that these stone water jars were there for Jewish purification in ancient cultures. And even in the middle East today, uh, people usually would take mud and make jars that they would use for various uses. But stone jars were used specifically for purification because mud jars would contaminate the water that they would use for cleaning. And every Jew who had come to this large wedding celebration would have had to go through washings, through purification, before they entered the party. We even see um, Jesus having a situation in Mark 7 where he is being confronted on these same washing rituals. These washing rituals weren't part of the Old Testament, but, but they became very popular in the first century. And the funny thing is, is what we read in this passage is that these water jars are empty as well. And I think it's a great picture to the bankruptcy of religion. I know many people in my life um, who they had something in their wine glass. They had, they had something that was filling their life that was completely divorced of God. And they, they, they wanted the next status symbol in their life, but they hit a point like Jim Carrey, where they said, I feel like it's going to always leave me empty. And so what they did, rather than turning to the next status symbol, uh, they turned to religion to fill them. They turned to God, to God. And they started washing their hands. They were clean. They did all the right things. They went to church. They led Bible studies. I know some who even became pastors. But the jars were just as empty. You see, what happens when you run to religion for your hopes, uh, you have the same issue that you find with a wine glass. Uh, Every pursuit, everything I do is never enough. You're always empty. You, You feel the same shame that you're following behind from everyone else around you. Or worse, you feel like God owes you something. 
Here's the way you could know that if you have a water jar of religion in your house, if you find yourself saying to God, how could you have let this happen? How could you not come through? Why are you doing this? All I've done is be devoted to you. All I've done is everything that you've asked. Now, please don't misunderstand me. God longs for us to come to him with our frustrations, our disappointments, our fears, our doubts, our hurts. Uh, I think the Psalms are a really great picture where we see God's people coming to him. But when we supply the answer for why God should not be allowing something in our life, and the reason is we've been so devoted to him, we've been so faithful, that's religion. There's a water jar in your house. And that life will always leave you joyless. And the water jar will always be empty. Let me say it this way. Haven't you known someone in your life, someone who they had just enough, too much religion in them that you never wanted to see them again. You never wanted to be around them. Some of the most joyless people I've ever met are religious. God isn't worshiped. He's just simply in your pocket. George Whitfield was a preacher from the 18th century, and this is what he said in one of his sermons called Methods of Grace. He said this, two things you need to do to become a Christian. First, you must repent of your sin, but that is not enough because even the Pharisees do that. Secondly, you have to repent of your righteousness. Self-righteousness is the last idol to be plucked out of the heart before you can become a Christian. You're not a Christian until you see that you're not able to be your own savior through your disobedience to God, but also through your obedience to God. The issue with religion is we're still trying to save ourselves, but the water is empty. So what's our way out of this problem? If we find that we're joy zapped and thirsty because we focused on living for ourselves and the wine has run out, But even more distressing, what's the way out of this problem? If the joy is zapped and we are thirsty because we focused on living for God and we find the water jars have run out, what's the way out of this? What's the remedy? Well, there's two things we must see from the remedy. The first is provocative and controversial. Jesus tells these servants, he tells them to take these empty water purification jars and he tells them to fill them to the brim in verse seven. And they fill them up all the way at the top. These massive water jars are filled to the brim. And these servants went to draw water like they have done many, many times before. And as they go to grab water, they find that there is wine for them. Here's why this is so provocative and why every commentator agrees. Jesus is essentially saying the wine of the festival feast has arrived in me. And there's no more scorekeeping. There's no more posturing. There's no more obsessing about how much do you need to clean up for the party because it is finished. You're invited to the feast and the wine is filled to the brim. Do you know what else this means? All the places that you have put your hopes to bring you joy that have continually let you down. Jesus essentially saying in this miracle, I'm the one you are looking for. I'm the one you're looking for. I will fill you to the brim with joy when nothing else will. I will set you free. I will satisfy you when every other source in your life leaves you empty. Do you see that? He is the only one who will truly satisfy you when nothing, nothing else will. And the second thing we have to see about the remedy is what did it cost Jesus to provide this joy for you? 
You see, earlier in this account, Mary comes to Jesus and she, and she tells him, she says, the groom is out of wine. And Jesus' response to her is, my hour has not yet come. Now, this is a very interesting and very cryptic phrase that Jesus uses. But what we know through the gospel of John is that when Jesus talks about the hour that has not come, he is talking about his death on the cross. Here's what we must see. For you to receive joy to the brim, we have to see that on the cross, he lost his joy by his life being taken. He was bruised. He was abused. He was discarded. He he lost the delight of the father on the cross. You remember he said on the cross, my God, why have you forsaken me? Don't you see that he lost the delight of the father on the cross so that you, you would always know when God looks at you, he is smiling when he sees you. He can't wait for you to come down the aisle. You have his approval. You have his love. You will never lose that. He's the groom waiting for you. And right here in this passage, when the party gets its life going again, when everyone's spirits are filled up, when everyone's joy is overtaken them, Jesus is aware of what it will cost him. Dr. Edmund Clowney wrote this, and I think it puts it in perspective. He says this, Jesus sits in the midst of all the joy, sipping the coming sorrow so that you can sit in the midst of all the world's sorrow and sip the coming joy. For Jesus to satisfy us and to fill us with joy to the brim, he would have to take our place. He would have to be emptied. He would have to thirst. Uh, This is, in fact, the point that John makes at the end of his gospel. He says this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, I thirst, I thirst. Do you see how much God delights in you? Do you see how much he loves you? Do you you see the thirst that he would take? A thirst that you will never know and never experience. He would take that thirst for you so you could experience joy to the brim. Do you want that? Do you want that? Well, that brings us to our last question. How do we receive it? Well, to receive it, we will actually have to do exactly what the people in this passage had to do. As painful and as shameful as it might be. We will have to admit we've blown it. We will have to admit we are out. We will have to say, I'm out of wine. I'm out of joy. Jesus, fill me to the brim. That's that's what it means to be a Christian. Have, Have you done that? Have you said that? That's how you receive the joy you were looking for. That's, that's how you find the life that no longer leaves you empty, that no longer leaves you thirsty. You come to Jesus with an empty glass and he will fill it to the brim. He is the only source that never runs out. Um, I don't know if you have read or have heard of the Chronicles of Narnia, but one of the stories, uh, part of that whole series is a story called The Silver Chair. And in that story, there's a moment where Jill um, has made some poor judgment and she has gotten separated from her companion in the woods, Eudice. Jill is alone. She is thirsty and she comes upon this stream, if you remember the story, and she encounters the lion. Now, the lion in C.S. Lewis's stories is a picture of Christ. But Jill, thirsty, comes to the stream but encounters the lion. And this is what we read. And maybe ask yourself this question this morning. 
Are you not thirsty? Said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do? Said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to to do anything if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Come, all who are thirsty. Come, all who are empty. Come, all who are out to the stream to the only stream, to the lion, Jesus himself, who fills us with joy to the brim. Come, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the story of the gospel at this wedding party. Uh, Enable us to see the beauty of your grace and the smile that you have when you look at us because of Jesus and what he has done. Fill us with joy to the brim, for there is no other stream. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen.